Hi everyone. This past Sunday, instead of preaching, we did a question and answer session. We had a great time asking questions and trying to find answers to, to some difficult things that we've been studying over the past few months. There was some input from the audience. There were questions and some insights that were given into some answers of these things. And they were all really good and I really appreciate them. Unfortunately, the way that we record our services, we weren't able to capture the audio from those comments and questions. There's still a lot of good stuff here, but I just wanted to let you know as an introduction to this video that there are some, some jump cuts and some things that were um, that had to be taken out because we didn't have good audio for it. But anyway, hopefully this message and this uh, discussion time blesses you, and you guys have a great day in the Lord. We're doing something different today. As you can see, usually I, I preach and uh, you guys listen. But we're going to do things that are hopefully listen. You know, there's this, we're just going to do a little more casual today, relax a little bit. There's a, a, a tweet I saw not that long ago, and I know you guys probably don't do Twitter. I don't really do Twitter, but it, it was a funny tweet. It says, C.S. Lewis got the idea for the screw tape letters uh, when he was listening to a boring sermon. Who knows what work of art you'll inspire today. So um, hopefully this is a, a, a little different than that. But over the past several months, we've been dealing with some difficult topics. We've talked a lot about how God reveals Himself. We've been wrestling with the problem of evil and suffering and pain in the world. We've discussed God's justice. We've discussed salvation. Over the last two weeks, we talked about divine punishment and what does it mean when the Bible talks about the ideas of hell. And so today, we're going to do a little Q&A session and I've been asking people to submit questions in the, in the back, in the box back there with, with the paper. There's no more paper. The box is still there. But um, I've been asking people to submit questions because there are things in the course of this study that we haven't been able to cover, and I wanted to do a Q&A session where we could maybe wrap up some loose ends. And so there were a, a few of you. I've got a handful of questions. So there are a few people who submitted questions, and then I've thrown in some in the mix. And as we go through this, we also have the, the possibility, I hope it's going to work out, that we can have some, some live Q&A, and instead of having you raise your hand and ask your question, maybe you want to remain anonymous. So if you have a question as we go through this, or a follow-up question as we're talking about a different topic, uh, you can text your question to that number right there. It's going to be on all the slides, so you can text your question to that number. Hopefully we're going to get it. We've tested it. It, it. it always works during the test, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, live here this morning, but you can ask that question. We will not name you if you ask a question, but if you're in our database and you text that number, you, we will see who it is. So it won't be completely anonymous. And if you spam me with questions or random nonsense during this, I will call you out. So whoever you are, uh, we're the youth today. If you're thinking about Ash, yeah, I see you. If you spam me with random questions, we will... We'll call that out. That's the real reason he had me up here. <laughs> yeah, she's going she's gonna to so help. So that I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, she's going to help sort questions. And I have Margaret up here because Margaret's a, a good friend of ours. I know you guys are all familiar with Margaret. Margaret doesn't like to get up and speak publicly, uh, but she and Hannah and I sit around and talk about the deep questions of life and the deep questions of theology and all these kinds of things. So this is kind of normal conversation for us. My wife is really shy and would prefer not to be up here. Margaret, just a little less so. So I got Margaret up here instead. And um, she's going she's gonna to help with some follow-up questions if she has any. And we're going to get into this. So some intro first. As we ask these questions, there's something that we want to lay out. First of all, I don't have all the answers. There are all kinds of questions that I have that I don't know the answer to. There are all kinds of questions that you have that I don't know the answer to. Right? Like, I, I don't have all the answers. There are some things that the Bible is clear about, and I think it's just pretty straightforward and right there. And there are some things that are less clear. God gives us what we need to know. He doesn't give us everything that we want to know. So we need to just go in with that mindset. God doesn't owe us answers. There, there are times, like, I'm a, I'm a dad there are times when I have to give my kids instruction and they want to know why. And I'm absolutely convinced that if a tree was going to fall on them, they would die because they would not simply move. They always want an explanation. If I said move, they'd go, why? 
You know, like they wouldn't just listen and then ask why later, right? Like the tree would fall on them and I constantly remind them while I try to be gracious and explain things to them, I don't always owe them an explanation. God doesn't always owe us an explanation. There's some things that we're just not going to understand. Just like I can't explain the mechanics of the car to the three-year-old, like that's, they're not going to get it. Like there's some things that we're just not going to get and we're going to have to be comfortable in our humanness and within our limits and go, God, you're greater than we are and we, we just don't understand. So uh, I don't have all the answers. And as we talk through these things, I'm not the final authority on all these questions. There are plenty of faithful Christians who would believe differently than we do as a church or I do as an individual, right? We have a statement of faith, and I believe it lines up with what the Scripture teaches, but there are Christian, uh, Christians who, who differ on that. And so we would just want to recognize that uh, I am by no means the final authority. I might be wrong on these things. Maybe God will change my mind one day, but what I'm offering today is where I am right now. And I think that as you're wrestling with these things, you're, you're going to come to similar conclusions. Well, this is, this is what I'm seeing, and this is what I think I'm hearing from the Lord right now. Um, as a pastor, as a leader, it is my role to teach sound doctrine and to encourage, right? So we want to uh, make sure that what we're teaching as, as an individual and as a church, that it lines up with Scripture. But you need to evaluate truth on your own. You need to seek truth on your own and not just take my word for it. I'm not God. I'm not all-knowing. And more importantly, like, I'm not the voice of God for you. Like, we collectively come together and we seek to hear from the Lord. And there might be some things that God shares with you that I need to hear, and there might be some things that God shares with me that you need to hear, but I am not the ultimate channel of God for you. God has made a way for you to have access to the throne of grace and to be in his presence. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And God wants a personal relationship with you where you can seek him out and hear his voice. So I'm trying to help this morning. It's my job as pastor of this church to provide some oversight and some direction and, and to study God's word and, and to speak into our corporate life together. But ultimately, you're responsible for yourself and you have to wrestle with God before him for yourself. The name Israel in the Old Testament means the one who wrestles with God. And there's this picture in the Old Testament of, of um, Jacob wrestling with God and his name is changed to Israel. And so we all have our personal journeys of faith and we're helping each other. We're responsible to look out for each other, but ultimately you'll stand before God one day and it needs to be about your personal relationship with him. Finally, I just would share a scripture with you this morning, and it is uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 15. It says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. So Paul is um, pursuing faith, and he says, I, all of my human accolades I count as trash so that I may know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, so that I may somehow participate or share in the fellowship of his resurrection. And he talks about forgetting what is behind and pressing toward what is ahead. And he says, as we mature, we're going to understand that there are going to be some differences, but we're seeking the Lord to make those things clear. So if you walk out of here today and you, you hold a different opinion that, that's uh, differently than maybe what I'm seeing or the way that I'm reading, uh, God is the one who is the ultimate authority, and he's the one who can make that clear, all right? So I would just encourage you to seek him for yourself. So we had one text message that says testing. All right, that works. Um, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll go. We'll go from here. All right, so the first question that we have on the list has to do with um, going back to the sermon that you preached a while back about how God reveals himself and this question of, you know, is he hiding? Why doesn't he make himself more obvious? Um, so the question is, why is it so difficult sometimes to discern God's voice or his will for us? Okay, as we begin to answer this question, I'm going to start with a couple of assumptions. 
And these assumptions are that you're seeking God, that you're praying, that you're reading your Bible, that you're communion, communing with God, and you're wrestling with, like, how do I know what God wants me to do? Because as a pastor, I have lots of experience with people who are wrestling with the decision they're making, and I will say, well, have you been praying about it? And they'll look at me and they'll shake their head no. It's like, well, what's your life with God like? How, how uh, do you commune with him on a daily basis? Do you read your Bible on a regular basis? And then they shake their head no. And I'm going, okay, you're wanting to hear from God. You're wanting to hear direction maybe for a particular decision in life. And you're not in daily communion with him. You're, those are the first steps. So, and you might think that sounds crazy, but it's way more common than you would think. All right? So we're going to assume that you're actively seeking God, that you're actively communing with him on a regular basis. All right, so I would begin by answering, in any particular case, I, I don't know. I, I just don't know. I would, love to, I would love to know, but I don't. There is a biblical pattern for decision-making. This is weird because you and I have had this conversation a lot. So um, there's a biblical pattern for decision-making. And that is, it involves both wisdom and revelation from God. So the wisdom side of things would be God gives us his word, and these kind of lay out the boundaries of how it is we're supposed to live life with him, what it is that we're supposed to do. And so we have, you know, Proverbs, we have uh, instruction in the Old Testament, and we read those, and we read those and we draw principles out of those about what it means to love your neighbor we see uh, very specific instruction in the New Testament. And so we have boundaries with, within which we're supposed to operate. And then there are times when God will speak to a very specific situation in our lives, and we'll call that maybe a special revelation or specific revelation about a particular question that we have or a direction that we might want to go. And so I want to keep those two things in mind. We have general boundaries and guidelines. Uh, God gives us wisdom for life. And then there are times when God speaks into that. And so then I would go to the next ideas, which would be obedience, uh, discernment, and confirmation. The obedience side of things is, are we living within the guidelines that God has provided? And are there things maybe God has revealed to us specifically that we're supposed to do? And as we're obedient to those things, God opens up doors and shows next steps and those kinds of things. It's a, this is a, a very difficult thing to, to figure out because if you're making an important decision in life, like, I want to know that I'm doing what God wants me to do, right? Like, I really want to hear from God on a particular thing. And so we want to be open for God to speak and then also provide confirmation. And so if we think that God is leading us down a certain path, we want to be open to other ways that he speaks to show us that that's the right way to go. So maybe in a conversation with a friend as we wrestle with, I think God's leading me here and we have a close friend that we can talk it over with, or there are other things that God just opens doors where there, there was just no path forward and God opens the door. So while I don't know in any particular instance, there is this pattern, and I think it's really evident in Acts chapter 16. So Paul is trying to figure out uh, which way to take the gospel. And so they are they're preaching the gospel. They try to go one direction, and the Holy Spirit prevents them. And it doesn't say how. It doesn't say why. It just says the Holy Spirit prevents them. They go another direction. The Holy Spirit stops them. And there's only one more direction to go, and they know they're supposed to preach the gospel. So they'll go the only other direction that's available to them. And then Paul has a vision of a man saying, come over here and help us, right? God confirms that direction, but he closes some doors first. And like, part of me says, well, why didn't just God tell him to go there in the first place? Like, I, I don't know, but there is, there is this thing where as we're obedient, God will reveal next steps. And the question is, why? What is this about? And for me in my life, there are several potential outcomes that I've seen true. Like, there have been times in my life where like, I need answers about a particular course of action. And I have agonized, and I have prayed. And I've gone up to Humpback Rock by myself and sat with my journal and was like, God, here are these things I'm facing, and these are the answers I want to hear from you. <laughs> like, I want to do this, and I want this to work out, and I want this to work out, right? 
none of those things worked out. What I've experienced in my life is these periods where it seems there's silence or I don't have a clear answer, God is bringing me into a greater dependence on Him and not just giving me all the answers because I want to know all the answers. The other thing is there is this concept that's called holy indifference. And indifference maybe sounds like a negative thing where it's like, I don't care. But that's not the idea here. It's not apathy, but it's, God, whatever it is that you want, that's what I want. And God is purging some self-will and things like that in order that we could be drawn closer to him. That would be my best guess and what I've experienced in terms of why those things happen. All right, we got questions coming in. Let's see. All right, we'll hold off on those for now and go to the next. So the question that's that's come in is very similar to some that we have later. So we'll we've seen it. We'll address it in a little bit. Um, so the next question that we're going to go to for now is why does God intervene to stop or prevent evil or harm in some cases, but not in others? I don't know. I, this is very much related to what we've already talked about as we've wrestled with the problem of evil. And we said there were two things. There's the intellectual side of things and there's the emotional side of things. So my short answer to that would be go back and check out those sermons because it talks about both of those angles in depth. But just to remind us in Job 38 through 42, God shows up in the midst of Job's suffering and says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? In other words, it's, it's beyond your comprehension. He never explains to Job why Job went through that. And I wish there was some way to say, well, in this case, this is what God is doing. In this case, he's doing something different. We read the New Testament. Think about the life of, of, of Paul. There are times when people are like touching things that Paul has touched and they're getting healed. And then there are other times when you read Paul, he's writing a letter and he says, I left so-and-so back there sick in that town. Couldn't you have just healed that guy and brought him with you? What is the, what is the difference there? And we're, we're not told, but I think that Scripture says that God has good reasons for doing the things that he does. And whatever happens, he will work out for good. That's what Romans 8.28 tells us. And we simply have to learn to trust him and let him work it out according to his plan. All right. Yes. All right, so let's go, let's go to the next question. Can I add a, another yeah. comment to that oh, question real quick ahead. first, too? Um, so in the past, when I've been wrestling with this question, something that I've come back to a couple of times as well is to actually look at the cross itself as well, because from the, from the standpoint of Jesus' disciples, you know, he tried to prepare them. He tried to warn them that the cross was coming and that, he, that Jesus would suffer like that. And, you know, that's beyond the worst thing that we can imagine happening. And his disciples didn't get it. And so the day after Good Friday, I can't imagine where they were in terms of asking a question like this of, you know, God, why did you allow this to happen to him? You know, we don't get it. This is not what we expected. Um, and they didn't see the reasons for it. They didn't see how that could be God's plan. And, of course, we now looking back, we can see Easter morning. We can see why that happened. We can see why God allowed such horrible things to happen to Jesus on Good Friday. So we may not necessarily get those answers in this lifetime for why horrible things happen in the world now or why horrible things happen to people we know. Um, but there is an element of trust there that we can have to say, like, God, I don't get it. I don't see it. I can't possibly imagine how this could be part of your plan, but you know what you're doing and you've got it. And it takes a lot of trust to do that, but I think that's something that we can go back and remember as well. One more thing, because that speaks to the emotional side. On the intellectual side, and the analytical, analytical side of me needs to hear this. 
without God, there is no basis for objective good and evil. There is no basis for objective morality. So if we want to say that something is actually wrong or something that is actually evil, you need a standard of good. And the only thing that can provide that standard is God. And without it, it's all just subjective opinion. This group thinks this and that group thinks that or this person likes this and that person prefers that. Uh, Without God as a standard, we don't have any way to say that something is actually objectively wrong. So there has to be a grounding for objective morality, and the only grounding we have is God. So I, I think what I would say in, in that vein of thinking is that there are things that we learn as we experience suffering. And the Scripture says that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And if Jesus learned things through suffering, then, then there's good there somewhere, and God would have things for us to learn as he allows certain pain and certain sorrows. All right. Uh, should we move on to next question? Sure. Okay. Uh, so next question is, if God knew some people would sin, is he responsible for their sin? For me, this is an intellectual answer to try to understand the differences between knowledge and responsibility for something. And I have a little diagram up there that hopefully somehow helps. All right? First of all, knowledge does not cause anything. Knowledge is not a causal force. I know that's a little philosophical, but the idea is simply knowing something can't make something happen. Secondly, each person is responsible for their own free choices. So in my little, we've got two little figurines up here. They're dancing or fighting. I don't know, pick. You, you, you pick what they're doing. Uh, someone having knowledge, even God having knowledge of what their choices would be in any particular circumstance is not causally connected to their choices. And the way that we show that is if you take knowledge out of the equation they are still free to make those choices. They make those choices freely on their own, and they're responsible for it, even if no one knows. And simply adding knowledge to God does not mean that he makes their choice happen. He simply knows what their choice will be, and they're still responsible for their choice. So that's a little bit technical. And by the way, all of these answers, I could give a full sermon on, or there have been books written about this. Like, these are deep questions. We don't have time to dive deeply into every one of them today but hopefully it just kind of gets you started in thinking through what answers could be. Okay. If God wants all people to be saved, why aren't they? First, that's good. Be thinking about how you're going to answer these questions because these are questions that you're going to encounter. Like the whole point of this thing is not just so that you go away with more knowledge, or I, I go away because I studied a lot with more knowledge. The whole point is that we'd be able to share our faith with other people. And so think through how you would answer these questions. Maybe you're going to answer them differently than I, than I would. The first thing I would say is we need to make sure the premise of the question is true. Does God really want all people to be saved? Because there, there are versions of Christianity where that doesn't seem to be what they hold. I think the Bible does teach that God wants all people to be saved. I would look at passages like 1 Timothy 2, and so that, that's where Paul talks about people praying for, for all people and for rulers and those in authority. And he says, this is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then again in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So I think the Bible does say that everyone, that God wants everyone to be saved. And so the answer is then that God has given us the ability to choose a relationship with him. We can trust God or we can refuse to trust God. I believe that's what Romans 1 through 3 teaches. Romans 9, 10, and 11 teaches this. We spent a lot of time in Romans 1 through 3 saying how although they knew God, 
they rejected God and they chose to worship created things rather than the Creator. In Romans 9 and 10 and 11, Paul is wrestling with why aren't the Jews saved? And he says they're not saved because of their birth, because they were born Jews. They're not saved because their ancestors were saved. They're saved through faith that God gets to determine who, who, whom he wants to save. And he chooses to save those who have faith in him. And there's this whole discussion in those three chapters about the way that God chooses to save. And so not all people will be saved because not all people receive the pardon that is offered in Jesus Christ, and God's not going to overpower anyone's free choice. He's not going to force himself on anyone, and so while he desires that everyone is saved, he's not going to overpower that freedom that he's given. And then the next few questions are kind of along the same sort of line, but um, why didn't God only create the people who would be saved? We're going to answer this one a little bit technically as well. If God only created those people who would believe in this world that we're living in, 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 in what we experience, we'll call it this world, if God only created believe those people who, were, who he knew would believe, that would be a completely different world than this world. And so those people in that different world might choose differently in that world than, in, than they did in the world that we actually live in. I've got a couple of illustrations going to help us think through that. We have this idea here of, you know, let's just say there's eight. It helps to talk about small numbers because you talk about billions, that's, that's hard to get our minds around. But let's talk about, let's pretend God created a world with eight people and half of them... Uh, reject him, and half of them believe. The people with their hands up, they're worshiping God. That's, 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 that's the code, all right? That's the key. So let's say half of them believe. And there's this assumption that if God only created those people who believe, then all those people would believe in whatever world he created. The problem is when you take those other people out of the equation, you have completely different circumstances. And so the two scenarios are not the same. And so those new circumstances might lead to something like this. Maybe in this new world, instead of the eight where four people are saved, maybe, again, half of them are saved and half of them are not. Or maybe in this world, one of them rejects God and the other three get saved. The other three turn to God. Or maybe in this world, three of them reject God and one of them gets saved. It, you can't equate these different scenarios because we all choose freely within the circumstances in which we're placed. The circumstances don't determine our choices, but we will respond differently in different circumstances. So there's no guarantee that if God only created the people who now believe and didn't create anyone else, that those same people would believe. They would be in an entirely different situation with an entirely different uh, set of circumstances, and they might choose differently because they have freedom of choice in those scenarios. So the answer is we, we can't solve this. God can. God knows what this equation is, and God knows what it looks like. And it's just wrong to assume that those people who believe now would believe if circumstances were different. All right. So given those thoughts then, is the majority of humanity lost? This is up to God. I think that there are things in Scripture that might hint at an answer, but ultimately God knows how things turn out. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. In that scenario, it seems that, relatively speaking, there aren't many that, that find life. But then we also have pictures in Scripture of multitudes at the end of time worshiping the Lord. Take Revelation 7-9, for example. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, 
from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. When we read the context here, here's a great multitude of people who are worshiping the Lord, and these people are people who came out of the tribulation. This is not all saints for all time. It's not every believer in every circumstance. These are a very specific set of people who worshiped God and didn't worship the, the false idol and the, and the beast in the book of Revelation, right? So there's this picture of multitudes and multitudes, countless numbers of people who are experiencing eternity in the presence of God. And God knows what those numbers are going to be. I, I don't. These are the things that I think we weigh in tension and we can pray and we hope that many more people will experience heaven than experience divine punishment. But God is just and whatever happens will be right. The, the other thing that's only like a kind of related just a little bit is I think the Bible gives good reason to believe that children who die before a certain period of being able to understand right and wrong and commit their lives to God, I, I think there are good biblical reasons. It's not clear, but there are good biblical reasons to say that those uh, people end up in God's presence forever, like God saves those people. And so if you think that of the, the multitude of human beings who have ever lived on the earth who would have fit that category, then there may be way more people in eternity with God than we would think, maybe what we experience in this world. And that, that would be some speculation on my part, but there, I think there are good reasons to think that. This question goes back a little bit um, to what we discussed a minute ago, but if God knew that people would be lost, why did he create them? Okay. So given a world where people make free choices, in order to have any world where people are saved, it might be necessary in that sense that there be people who would reject God. It may be that in any world that God creates, there's always going to be at least one person who rejects God. And maybe that number is much, much higher. Like, given the fact that freedom matters to God, apparently, uh, there may not be any situation where everybody gets saved. I think this makes good sense of what we read in Romans 9, and that's this. It says, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? That's a difficult passage to wrestle with. But what I think it's saying is that God knew that there were going to be some people who would reject him, that he bears patiently with them that he gives them opportunity for salvation. It's not as though God cuts them off completely. They have opportunity, but out of their own choice, they reject God. And if that's the case where, like, there's, this, there's no world in which everybody just gets saved, everybody trusts God, there's people that reject him, the question then becomes, is God then obligated to not create? Like if God looks and says, any world that I create, there are going to be some people, we don't know how many, there are going to be some people who are lost and some people who are saved. I don't think that means that God is not allowed to create. As long as he operates with justice and does what's right, and if people have the freedom to choose him and by their own free choice reject him, it doesn't mean that God is somehow responsible for that rejection. That knowledge is not causal. That's where that's connected, right? And why should evil have power to veto the, the opportunity for love and joy? This is, we talked about this last week in the uh, great divorce from C.S. Lewis. Uh, he, there's a great line in there, and it's basically, why should evil have power to veto the presence of love and joy? So if God is saying, hey, I want to share my love and my joy with people, and I want to do that so that they genuinely matter and freedom is important for that, then it seems to me that he would create everyone 
and he bears with great patience those who would reject him. He gives them opportunity after opportunity, but ultimately, the only other answer would be God couldn't create at all, and I don't think that God's confined to that. I think as long as God deals justly with people, then his ways are good and right, and, and we, we wrestle with that because that means there are people that we care about that won't experience that presence of God and that goodness of God for eternity, but it's their choice. It's, it's, they're responsible for that, and so somehow God is wanting to share his fellowship with us to anyone who would receive it, and he patiently bears with those who reject him. some questions back here. Oh, okay. So what he's referencing are passages like the earlier section of Romans 9, and also Romans 9 talks about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and that speaks to a situation that's happening back in Exodus. And if anyone wants notes on this, I've got lots of notes where I go through each individual instance, and there are different ways that this is presented. In some ways, it just says that Pharaoh's heart was hard. Other times, it says Pharaoh hardens his heart. And there are other scriptures that say God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So there there are two different agents. There are two different people who are responsible for this hardening, Pharaoh and God. In Romans 9, it talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And it's important that we realize that the word for harden in the Old Testament and those passages in Exodus is the same word that's used over and over again for God strengthening people for something. So it says, be strong and courageous. And God strengthens maybe a judge or a leader in the Old Testament for a task. That this is not against their will. This is God in cooperation with their desire. And so when it comes to the scenario of Pharaoh, God is just in judging Pharaoh at any particular point that he would want to judge him. If Pharaoh is rejecting God, then God is just in dealing out dealing with Pharaoh however he sees fit, right, and bringing punishment. If God strengthens him in his choice so that he can bring about other purposes, namely to make his name great is what this passage talks about here in Romans 9, and to show his power in the world, like God can use people's free choices to demonstrate things about himself. And if people are freely rejecting him, God can strengthen them in that rejection. And that, that maybe seems counterintuitive, but God is just at any point to judge them. And I think that this is what Romans 9 is getting at, that he bears with great patience. The entire time he's pleading with Pharaoh to, turn his, to change his mind. Pharaoh, at any point, could have had the opportunity to say, I'm, I'm going to do what you're asking of me, but he simply doesn't. There is, like, there is an element here where it's, where it's kind of like both and, because if you read that passage in Romans 9, God bears them with great patience to make his power known, and the end result of this is that people get to share in his glory and his mercy. If God is just confined, well, if people are going to reject me, I can't create, then no one gets to experience God's glory and mercy. And so it seems to be that given freedom, people are going to reject, not because it's somehow necessary, but people just do, and sadly, they miss out on what God has for them. Another sort of lesser-known example that I've just been reading earlier that kind of speaks to this, too, um, in the book of Isaiah, in like chapters 7, 8, 9-ish, um, he, it speaks in a similar way about the king of Assyria and God using him as an agent of justice and using the state of his heart as it already is. You know, the king of Assyria already wants to go around and he's power hungry and he wants to conquer all these peoples. And God uses that as an agent of justice on nations that are unfaithful to him. Um, so it's, it's not quite the same in that it, it's not... I don't think it says that God actively hardens the king of Assyria's heart, but he uses that state of heart that is already there for his purposes and to display his power and his justice. Okay, so 
Um, like Brandon said, the next couple of questions are kind of overlapping each other. So um, the ideas are around how do we reply to people who are asking some of these tough questions. So how do we reply to somebody who is asking, you know, well, if God is really love, if he really loves people, how could he send them to hell? Um, and then also, how do you respond to people who they're already convinced that there is no God, they might be a good person, good person in terms of the world standards, they might be kind, you know, whatever, um, but they are not interested in a relationship with God. And so how do you how do you talk to them? How do you respond to them about why a relationship with God is so critical? What, what I would say in response to these three lines of questions, let me, re, let me just repeat them so I get them clear in my head. All right. Interactions with friends who just say, hey, there's no God. Interactions with people who are trying to be good but have no desire to have any kind of relationship with God. And then related to that, if God really loves people, why would he let them go to hell or make them go to hell? Those are tied up. And the first thing I would say is that the scriptures say that it's the Holy Spirit who convicts the world in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. So in any of those cases, it's not my job to convince someone of the truth. It's my job to present them with the truth. It's my job to explain the truth as best I can to them. But I am not the Holy Spirit. It's not my job to convict them and make them feel bad about whatever particular uh, thing or whatever particular problem they have or whatever particular sin they're caught up in. That, that's something that Scripture says God will do, and the question is, how will they respond? So to take the pressure off a little bit, you don't have to make them believe. You're not going to argue them into the kingdom of God. Many of the things that we've talked about in terms of the ways that God reveals himself and shows himself in nature, these, these help. Um, there's a, a speaker that will often talk about, your goal is to put a pebble in their shoe to give them something to think about that will kind of get their attention and be a bother, in a sense, to make them ask deeper questions. Because in a short conversation, you might not be able to get to everything that you think they need to hear. God, God knows what they need to hear, and be attentive to the Holy Spirit as you're speaking to them, and share the truth as you understand it, and let God work on them. Let, let God reveal the truth to them. When we're wrestling with the idea of goodness, I think it's important that like the, we're talking about the problem of good and evil, right? We're talking about the problem of evil. And again, understanding at a foundational level that without God as the standard of good, there just really is no such thing as evil. It's just things we don't like. That's not satisfying to most people. Most people aren't comfortable with going, well, you know, the Nazis, that was just their way of life and that was good. Like, they're not comfortable with that at all. They, the things that were done in, in that period of history was actually wrong. You've got to account for that. And how can you account for that? And the only way to account for that is God. So that's why I keep coming back to this idea of morality pointing to the existence of God. Because in our hearts, we all cry out for justice. So for the really good person who's trying to do their best, and they're not interested in God, I think when you have opportunity and presumably you're close to this person, right? Because if you're just preaching to them out on the street, they're not necessarily going to be open. But when you have opportunity to speak to their heart, you can ask questions about the brokenness that they experience, their heartaches, their sorrows, and present God as the one who's restorative. Like the, the message of Scripture is um, God created us to experience His goodness. When we rejected it, uh, we experienced suffering, and God is the one who will bring us back to health and to wholeness. And that is a, a message of hope, not a message of, hey, you're going to experience hell if you don't turn, but there's a God who wants to rescue you from the consequences of the decisions that people make, from all the destruction that we see in the world. There, there is a God who wants to set things right if we will only let him in. When it comes to the question of, you know, why 
does God allow people to go to hell? Hell is problematic, number one, because it's uncomfortable, but number two, as we've talked about our series on hell, there are so many misconceptions about what hell is. And so we might want to think about how we portray the idea of justice and maybe approach it from that angle. Do you believe it's just to punish people when they do wrong? What, what's your view on that? And in all of these things, it's helpful to ask questions and not just tell people what they ought to believe, but try to talk about what, how they see things. Do you believe it's, it's just and right that people are punished for wrong that they do? Generally, the answer is yes. And then the question is, uh, have you ever done anything wrong? Because I've done plenty wrong. There's plenty of wrong in me. Does that mean I, if I'm consistent in my view and I believe that punishment is just, is it just that I'm punished? And however many excuses that I want to offer for my own behavior, if I'm consistent, my answer is yeah. Well, that's where this idea of divine punishment comes in and God's justice, but there is a way to escape that just. There is a, a way to escape getting what we deserve, and that is Jesus took the price. Jesus took the penalty for what we deserve, and there is a way out of that so that you could experience the grace of God rather than the justice of God. And to talk around ideas of what it means to be just and good and hopefully put that pebble in their shoe that they help to see that they need to have a consistent view of the world. And many people are just comfortable living with inconsistencies. Parents, 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 I love you. I love you. I didn't plan on saying this, but I need you as parents to hold me accountable because you will not believe the number of times I deal with parents who see a situation in another family and go, they're not handling that child right. That's not the right thing to do. That's not how I'm going to be with my children. Then their children get into a circumstance, and their children do something dumb. And instead of bringing the justice that is needed, parents go, oh, not my baby. And they do something completely, completely ridiculous because it's their baby. And they would look in any other circumstance that they would say, that's wrong, don't do that, that's wrong. But because it's their baby, I need, I'm expecting you, when my kids are there, and I say, oh, it's my baby, you go, no, Brandon, do the right thing. <laughs> I need that because I recognize that tendency in myself. And you know you've seen it. It is important that we do the right thing and not just what makes us feel good. And that's the only reason I bring up that, that illustration, because we are drawn to whatever makes us feel good. But God wants us to feel good, but He's going to do the right thing. He's going to do right by us. And if that is, we've put our trust in Him and we've relied on Christ, then we are recipients of grace. And if that is, we've rejected Him, He's going to say, have it your way, I will do right by you. And he will remove, he will, he will step back and re remove that protection from us and we'll experience that, that suffering that is the just desert of our wrong actions. And I think when we put it in that category, it helps to explain some of these deeper questions that God is always going to do right. God is loving and he longs for his children to experience that love but he's also going to do what's just. I don't know if that helps answer the questions. It's a start. We meet on Wednesday nights. We can continue this discussion on Wednesday nights. We're going to let Nancy ask a question real quick, and then we'll, we'll close. I think that's key, is this idea of, of love and care, not trying to win an argument, but seeing the person for who they are and ministering to them and serving them in terms of, of what they need. <laughs> There, 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 there's a question that's asked uh, about uh, marriage and divorce and remarriage and those types of things. I'll give a, a short answer on that, but I want you to know that that is the topic of our next series. We're going to be talking about um, how we're made in the image of God and how we relate to one another. We're going to be talking about issues of uh, life and reconciliation when humans don't get along. We're going to be talking about God's design for marriage and what Scripture teaches there. So there's plenty more to come, and I know that our, our topics today were kind of geared toward what we've been talking about. 
hey, we may end up doing one of these in the, in, at the end of the next series. We'll see how that goes. If you guys enjoyed this, if it was a blessing to you, I, I hope so in some way. Um, but, but specifically, uh, the question that, that hadn't been addressed yet, it's slightly off topic, so I'll hit it quickly, and if anybody has any follow-up questions, I'll just, I'll hang out up here and, um, and answer those. Uh, but the question is, if, if I was divorced and before I knew Christ, let's say I, I, I just was, was living life, doing my thing, and involved in a relationship, in, in a marriage, and that marriage um, ended in divorce, and I become a Christian, am I free to remarry? I, I think the teaching of Scripture is, is yes. I would say that there uh, needs to be some serious soul-searching, in a sense, and uh, exa- examination of the previous life and wrestling with uh, all that scenario. And there's a lot of heart work that has to be done there. But we're going to be looking at Scripture's teaching on divorce, what, what Jesus says in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and other places, we're going to be looking at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. So that might, I, I'm sure that did not answer all of your questions around that topic, uh, but there is a lot to say there, and that will be coming in the next month or so. So stay tuned for those types of relational questions, and uh, hopefully this, this helps you out today in some way, shape, or form. We're just going to close in prayer. Thank you for bearing with us on time. I appreciate the input and the questions. Uh, we can do this every Wednesday night as long as people show up and ask questions. And again, I might ask you some questions. I should have just let Margaret answer all the questions today. That would have been fun. But anyway, thank you for your patience in this. And hopefully it's been a, a blessing to you. Let's close in prayer. God, I want to thank you for the opportunity to study your word together and to seek truth together. God, we're not meant to do this alone. But you call us to community. And God, you give insight and wisdom and knowledge of your word to each person in this place. And God, we all have something to learn from the other people here. And God, I pray that you would continue to work and move among us. And as we're reminded this morning that it's not our job to argue people into the kingdom or to be your lawyer. Rather, it's our job to love people Uh, Your word says that the world will know that we're your disciples if we love one another. So God, I pray that this place would be a place that is full of your love, that you would put it in our hearts, and that it would overflow in our conversations and our service to one another and to all the world around us as we live our daily lives. God, we pray for your power in us in Jesus' name. Amen.